It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And, of course, you can listen on the Radio Player Canada app. You can also uh, listen to some of our uh, previously uh, recorded interviews and conversations that we have on our SoundCloud. And you can also catch them on uh, any podcast platform as well. It's a pleasure to welcome three guests to the show today. And I have to tell you that originally uh, this this recording and this conversation was going to be about an exhibit that I that I saw that looked very, very interesting. And I wanted to uh, get uh, get people to, to on to talk about this exhibit. But, you know. Uh, as I got into uh, looking at this uh, and looking at the people involved with it, it seemed like the three people in, that I have on my show today are just as fascinating to talk to as this exhibit that I wanted to talk to. And so it's a pleasure to have Brian Francis, Nadia Khoury, and Jessica Lindsay Phillips here on the show. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of them. I'm going to start with Jessica. Jessica Lindsay Phillips is the owner and head of the J.L. Phillips Private Gallery located at Summerhill, Ontario, and quarterly holds public pop-up sale exhibitions that are highly curated, featuring tribal art, natural history, and contemporary art. Her passion for all forms of art is reflected in her highly curated uh, thematic exhibition, exhibitions, which include to date Femme, The Power of the Female Form, and Feast, Our Intimate Connection and Cultural Obsession with Food. Uh, she also works with, as a private consultant for collection display management and actively brokers deals both domestically and internationally. Jessica also has a collaborative book launched in the summer of 2020. It is entitled Man Who Cannot Die. The Phantom Shield of Papua New Guinea, which is the first publication of this newly emerged classification of art deemed pop tribal. Jessica is the former director of the Billy Jameson Niagara Falls Museum Collection and Jameson Estate. Brian Francis, this only gets better, folks. Brian Francis is the uh, is an author, poet, photographer, director, producer, and accomplished filmmaker. For many years, he managed the Juno Award-winning Indigenous recording artist Eagle Feather. He spearheaded the development and production of APTN series Eastern Tide, and Brian won five international awards for the feature documentary Circle of Justice which screened at 17 film festivals around the world and debuted at the Smithsonian Institute. He then went on to direct the Sacred Sundance for the National Film Board of Canada. He has produced, directed, and has written over 70 documentaries. Most recently, Brian released his first book, Between Two Worlds, Spiritual Writings and Photographs. In 2020, Brian was the recipient of the Lieutenant Governor's uh, Dialogue Award for his work as an ambassador to bringing people together and as a protector and keeper of the Mi'kmaq language. And just to finish things off, we have, of course, to talk about Nadia. Nadia Kure is the owner of the Gallery on Queen and is a highly driven and results-oriented professional, energetic and positive, with a talent for inspiring loyalty and bringing and maintaining relationships. She has extensive experience in working at the management level in the nonprofit sector. 
She is passionate about promoting arts, culture, and social action causes in Atlantic Canada. So that gives you an idea of part of what we're going to be talking about today. New Brunswick's art and culture sector has always been the cornerstone of her endeavors. She is concerned about the future of the arts in New Brunswick. And for the past 30 years, she has been devoting her time and energy to the arts. She was on the executive committee for the Cultural Human Resources Council of New Brunswick, Culture Plus. And uh, she has a keen eye for raw talent and believes that if an artist is well represented, their work will only enrich the culture of the province. She envisions a place where people could buy original pieces of art at affordable prices. And her dream is to establish an innovative art gallery dedicated to making original art accessible and affordable, while providing a form for artists to show their work in a public form through a non-traditional gallery environment. That's just the introduction, folks. <laughs> I think we're out of time. Thank you all for being on the show today. <laughs> it's a pleasure to welcome Jessica, Nadia, and Brian to the show. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you, David. It's a pleasure. You know, and now, as I said, I originally uh, wanted to talk about an exhibit that I, I guess had a limited run uh, to speak of um, and, uh, it, and at the Yorkville Village. And it, it's uh, Wabanaki. Now, I understand that's running for a limited time, like I said, but it had to, of course, to do with uh, the uh, uh, Downey Wenjack Path Week. And so that was, I guess, the reason of this. Who would like to tell me a little bit about why you guys thought it was important to collaborate, come together, and, and put this together for this? Back in July or so, uh, Brian Francis, who's a dear friend of mine for the past decade, uh, reached out to me with this amazing exhibition that uh, Nadia has curated. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I really felt passionate for it from the moment that uh, I saw the images and I understood what it represented and uh, I, I work very organically with, uh, with collections and with art and this was no exception. It, it really came together almost like flowing water, mm. uh, it, like a river and mm. it's been beautiful in that way. Uh, when Brian reached out to me, of course, uh, the first thing I did was also reach out to all of my connections. And uh, I'm blessed enough to know Jake Gold, who is uh, the estate runner for Gord Downey and very uh, connected to the Downey Winjack Fund, which he, uh, when I told him about this project and exhibition, I, that was the first thing he thought of as well. Mm. Um, so it's really been a very community-based and supported exhibition from New Brunswick right into Ontario. And it just happened that it, this would line up at the same time as the Downey Wenjack Secret Path Week. Mm. So we really took this as a, a, the right timing and the right opportunity to be part of this especially to share uh, a body of work and civilization that has been, uh, you know, not a, as represented across Canada and especially in Ontario. And we felt that this would be a fantastic opportunity, not only to raise awareness for Downey Wenjack, but also for the Wabanaki tribes. Mm. Great. All right. Brian, anything to add to that? Yes, um, 
when we first talked about this concept, uh, um, Wabanaki, um, just for your information, uh, has had two exhibitions in the East Coast at Gallery on Queen. Mm -hmm. And the last, um, I think it was last June, uh, after the success of the exhibit, we felt that this should be uh, brought to other audiences and other uh, communities across the country. And uh, we figured we would uh, probably start with um, a Toronto, uh, it being a major, mm -hmm. major uh, center in Canada. And uh, I immediately contacted uh, Jessica and she just hopped on board right away. I knew um, JL Phillips Gallery uh, has been in existence for su su such a long time. She has experience and she's probably the, the number one person to get a hold of to to be able to pull off something like this mm. and uh, we began to have meetings with jessica and nadia and uh, like every week we set a meeting and and things just kept moving forward and uh we knew it was happening we just weren't sure exactly where it was happening uh, and then uh yorkville village came on board and and that's when like uh things just took off but it's uh it's really um I, as uh, a collaborator, I guess, uh, really feel that East Coast Indigenous art is, um, like, like Jessica mentioned, um, it's not really represented uh, anywhere. Mm. And I, we're hoping that this is just the start of a, of a, um, like a moving exhibit that's going to be uh, brought to major centers uh, across the country and maybe, maybe to the world. Yeah, uh, great. And uh, it, from what I can see online, it looks amazing. Uh, the artists, the work that is uh, represented, fabulous stuff. So I, I'm going to take that over to Nadia and ask her about uh, curating this. Uh, great job and congratulations to all of you, first of all, for, for uh, coming together and, and pulling this together. Uh, Nadia, what were you uh, hoping to accomplish? Thank you, David. Um I actually have been working with the artists for uh, over six years. Mm. Um, and uh, we had uh, multiple shows, uh, solos and um, solo shows and group shows for the artists that uh, we have decided that it'll be uh, awesome to have only Wabanaki indigenous East Coast art as a group show Um and um, again, uh, by working with um, a group of artists over 20 um, from all ages, um, I have uh, artists that are 22 in their early 20s. Um, I have artists in their mid uh, ages and uh, much older. And uh, we have uh, artists who have passed and uh, we are proud to be able to represent their work. Um, the quality of the art is um, uh, it, it's extremely high. It's uh, just by working with um, all the artists and meeting them and talking about their, their work and their struggle as an artist to really make uh, stunning pieces. I felt it's uh, definitely we need to bring it at the national level 
Um, they're all well known in our province, but I, I really felt um, it's important to bring them uh, to Toronto, which is the biggest uh, city in the country. Um, and uh, it was a dream of ours. And uh, I honestly did not think it's going to happen this fast. But uh, we definitely had a powerhouse uh, dealing with Jessica uh, Phillips and uh, Brian and his connection and his knowledge. Mm. Um, I'm honored to work with both of them. Uh, I felt by having Brian, um, he, he knows exactly the history of the Wabanaki um, people, uh, the people of the dawn. Uh, we uh, ever so careful decided to move this massive uh, exhibition. It's uh, close to 120 pieces uh, mm. from all different sizes um, and medium. Uh, we have quill work, uh, we have beading, um, oil painting, acrylic, uh, metal smith, uh, stunning work of art of metal, which is jewelry, but uh, it's it's absolutely stunning. Uh, we have masks uh, that are made from the rare butternut tree that's going to be extant in 60 years, I believe. Mm. Uh, they're very rare pieces. Mm. Um and we are very proud to show it as a group together because you get the feeling and you get the history by seeing every piece. Um, it's, it's, um, I'm extremely proud to be part of this exhibition from day one. And my aim and hope is we'll able to move it to more larger cities around the country and hopefully one day um, abroad. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, just just for clarification, because as I say, this has a sort of a limited run in Toronto. Is it going to still be available after that? We will continue to display the work and have it on our website and hopefully keep it as a as a show. My aim is to keep the pieces together and we'll be able to show it a larger audience. And as we go, more people will know about the work and the word will spread and um, the East Coast art will be elevated on a national level. It will be given a place where it so deserves. Mm. Nicely said. And before we go further, I just want to mention that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guests are Brian Francis, Nadia Kure, and Jessica Lindsay Phillips. We're talking about uh, art. And specifically, we were talking about uh, the this exhibit, uh, Wabanaki. And, uh, but but also, uh, we're talking about the, the works of uh, of that Jessica and uh, Nadia and Brian are involved with. Uh, they are all uh, well established in their uh, areas of expertise. Um, and I, I want to say that, you know, if people go to the Wabanaki site uh, for your gallery on Queen, um, you, you get to see each of the artists represented. You get to see their work. If you scroll down, it's fabulous uh, the way it's laid out. The images, as you say, Nadia, the, the high quality uh, of, of the work that is involved is amazing. Um, and uh, as I say, you scroll down, you get to see a description of each of the pieces uh, in each of the areas that people are working in and their, their work. And as uh, you pointed out, they are also up for sale. So if people are interested, they could, they could purchase them. I guess they can purchase them online as well. That's, very, that's correct. That's perfect. Uh, th- thank you. 
it is wonderful to see all this stuff. And Brian, as you pointed out, and I guess uh, Jessica also, this is not something that a lot of people know about uh, outside, I guess, of the East Coast. And so it is really wonderful to see uh, how this is brought together. And I have to I have to ask you also, and perhaps Brian knows something about this, because um, I get a feeling now that he might might have been involved with it. And that is the, the video that is made around this uh, and the music. Yeah, yeah, good instincts, because... Um we did uh, record that um, the music track for the video and it was sung by my, my brother, Hubert, mm. who you mentioned earlier as the uh, Juno award nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, we felt that it was important to uh, represent uh, the works with uh, traditional music from the East coast, from the Wabanaki people. Mm. Uh, the language that we speak is Mi'kmaq mm-hmm. uh, and it's an ancient language. Mm. And that's, uh, I think it just helps uh, highlight uh, the, I guess, the uniqueness and the uh, some of the mysticism in, in some of the works of the artists. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the artists are, um, their work is really, uh, really uh, has an ancient feel to a lot of their pieces. Um, our history goes back being, um, of the Wabanaki nations, we we've been in contact with the Europeans the longest and we've, we've, we've lost the most as far as culture and mm. ceremony, prayer, song, dance mm. has is concerned. Mm. And um, a lot of people feel that um, the Eastern tribes are, are basically uh, uh, nowhere to be found. And uh, I think the artists are making a statement that yes, we are here and we've been here and we are, we're still here. Mm. And I think uh, that's represented in in a lot of the works. Mm. Nadia, you said you've been working with these artists for about six years. This stuff is is really really interesting. How did you first uh, How did you first get involved or hear about it? And why are you interested in it? Um, I've been a fan of indigenous art all my life. Um, I am uh, an immigrant myself. Um, I um, immigrated from Lebanon in 1977, Mm. and a few years after, I walked into our uh, public gallery, um, Beaverbrook Art Gallery in Fredericton, and I see a mask made by Ned Bear, and I was completely uh, blown away, and um, I just had a connection to Indigenous art. Mm. And it was, um, I, I am uh, really, it was a, a big dream of mine to even meet him. Mm. And when I decided to open, um, I sourced out about 50 artists, but Ned was the first person I called. Mm. And in the beginning, he he basically said, I don't have anything to, to at the moment, but mm. shortly after, he was in touch and he brought me a mask, and it was a, a, a complete joy for for me to have one of his masks. And um, we built, I built a relationship with my artists one on one, and I I know deep down uh, how much they uh, their work is important to them, and I value their time and effort. Um, and it just grew from, um, I put the mask in the window and I felt there's a lot of indigenous artists start coming to chat about it. Mm. And as I talk, I knew themselves, they were artists and they had work and they start bringing me to work. And as you know, time went on, um, I managed to have over 15 artists that, um, 
were happy for me to represent their work. And it's truly an honor for um, when, when they bring you the precious pieces and they say, just do what, uh, feel free to, to showcase my pieces the way you see fit. Hmm. Uh, so wow. this is uh, a, a big dream for me to bring the work here. Mm. Um, it's a big step for us. Mm. And uh, we're a small gallery in a small province. Uh, to be able to bring the work to this stage is uh, monumental, really. Wow, that sounds, you know, a couple of things come to mind uh, when you say that. And, and I would appreciate uh, whoever would like to jump in on this, but I'd like to hear about Jessica and, and Nadia in, in on this as well, as, as you guys are, are, are the, the ones that are out there uh, sort of representing or, or have these, these things featured in your galleries. And, and that is uh, the idea that, and you touched on this, uh, Nadia, about, because I get a sense this is, as much as this is is beautiful to look at and the the quality of the work is amazing that i i get a sense that this really would these kind of things would really stimulate discussion around the education of the east coast and the the east coast uh nations as well yeah i definitely david and uh you know i completely agree on you know Looking at this artwork, and as you know, as uh, my background is in historical mm. uh, ethnographic and tribal art, um, personally, and this is a very close part to me, uh, is to be able to uplift and to elevate contemporary Indigenous artwork uh, and bridge the gap and tell the story of both historical and contemporary uh, myself, uh, I'm Algonquin heritage. And mm. so supporting this um, in my community is very important as well. And uh, again, when Brian came with me to this project, uh, helping with this exhibition is very important to me. Um, I've been collecting a contemporary art, mostly from the uh, West Coast, uh, Corey Bullpit, Bill Reed, as well as into uh, the U.S. Uh, from uh, Gio Kuma, as well as uh, uh, a few other artists uh, and, uh, you know, being exposed to these artists um, gives me even more of appreciation and especially being a collector. Uh, believe me, it's been very hard to not buy a lot in this collection already. Uh, and, and again, it's that exposure that as a collector and appreciator of uh uh, of indigenous artwork it's so important to have these exhibitions and how many people weren't aware of you know even master carvers like mm. ned bear uh mm. on this artworks and, and the history behind it we also have from brian's personal collection uh basketry and quill mm. work mm. and that really tells more of the story to show how long this artistry has been here and what appreciation we can show from old and new. And, uh, and, and I really do believe that it's a way stepping forward in not just reconciliation and, um, and inclusivity, uh, but a move forward for everyone to understand what even just what the artistry behind it means and, and the civilization and the culture that that stands so strongly behind it mm. and with it. 
Right. Uh, Brian, I'd like to ask you a question about uh, Nadia and, and Jessica and their involvement and, and what Nadia was saying about that, uh, uh, the idea that the artists come to her and say, feel free to present this however you like in your gallery. That, to me, states that they have a, a real strong trust. And I'm getting the sense that uh, that is also uh, the, the sense from Jessica as well. Um, and, and, of course, trust is a big deal. Uh, uh, with indigenous people yes um it's amazing the um the immediate uh, relationship i guess that we uh, encounter when we deal with nadia and gallery on queen is just um it's really something that's uh really unique um i don't know if it's because her coming from another uh country mm. um it, it, you're not dealing with the mindset of uh like a canadian mentality i guess mm. And um, there is a, a tremendous sense of trust um, from the artists. Um, it's really um, interesting for me, I guess, because coming from an indigenous community uh, from Ozibuktuk, New Brunswick, we don't have much exposure to the art culture. Mm. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, with the help of Nadia and people like Jessica, it really helps bring our art and our artists to another level um, to be able to describe uh, our artists and our artwork as fine art and be in uh, prestigious uh, galleries such as this in Yorkville Village um, was probably not fathomable uh, 10 years ago. And uh, with the help of collaborating uh, with people like Jessica and Nadia, I think that provides our people with uh, a sense of hope that there may be, uh, you know, uh, a goal to reach uh, when somebody is working in their basement or in their back back room or whatever. That their art might might have a chance to be seen uh, by by people that are involved in the art world, and I think that's really uh, a tremendous opportunity for a lot of our artists. What, one thing, sorry, I'd like to add, sure. um, my relationship with the artist, uh, um, money comes in last. It's mainly promoting the work and uh, spreading their, their um, you know, um, wonderful pieces around. So it's basically, it's about the work. It's not about the financing part. That's that's refreshing uh, and very nice to hear. I'm sure from the artist's perspective, uh, and and say, again, I'm sure that that uh, builds up that trust that uh, we were talking about there. It's been such a pleasure to speak with all of you. I wish we had more time, but we don't. So uh, I just want to say uh, thank you, Chimigwech, Nyawagoa, and uh, Wanishi to each of you for joining me on the show to talk about this. And congratulations to all of you, and, and uh, wish you all the best in the future. All right, Bamapi. And, and uh, if people can't get to see the exhibit, though, if they're listening from maybe outside of the city or whatever, uh, they can still go online to the Gallery on Queen to see the, the work there. And uh, is that going to stay up online, Nadia? 
It will stay online, definitely, because we called it Wabanaki 2021 mm. Toronto. Yep. Uh, the pieces that are sold that be marked as sold, yep. uh, uh, the pieces, uh, the balance will still be there. And um, I promise to keep you posted of uh, any future shows <laughs> that, uh, wherever we are. Fabulous. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much to all of you and, and take care. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Thank you. Take care. Hello, Bye-bye. They're the voices of Brian Francis. He is an author, poet, photographer, director, producer, and accomplished filmmaker. Nadia Kure is the owner of the Gallery on Queen in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And Jessica Lindsay Phillips is the owner of J.L. Phillips Gallery in Summerhill, Toronto. And it's been a pleasure speaking with all of them. Check it out online. Wabanaki, you got to check it out. Uh, Gallery on Queen. Abenaki, have a look at that and then check out all three of these people and see the wonderful work that they are doing and read about their history. All right, that's this part of the show. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more here on Moment of Truth right after these messages. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show David Webster. He is a history professor at Bishop's University and adjunct research professor at Carleton University. His books include Challenge, The Strong Wind, Canada and East Timor, 1975-99, and Fire and the Full Moon, Canada and Indonesia in a Decolonizing World. Now, I'm here to talk to David about an article he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, Ming for the Two Michaels, Lessons for the World from the China-Canada Prison Swap. So it's a pleasure to have David here, but a little more about him before I introduce him. He is the editor of Flowers in the Wall, and he is also a a fellow of the Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University, the Graham Centre for Contemporary International History at the University of Toronto, and the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. So it's a pleasure to welcome David to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, the invitation to talk. You bet. So your article, Ming, for the two Michaels, and it really made me think about the rise of China to a superpower. And, you know, a couple of things come to mind is how this happened and why it happened. Uh, Of course, economy comes to mind and certainly trade comes to mind. And certainly the idea of uh, using China for cheap labor and those kind of things, which I, I imagine had a lot to do with uh, China's ability to uh, infiltrate itself throughout the world, although there's always a cost to no matter what we do. Um, what is your take on that? Well, there's a, there's a lot there. I, China has had a rise to being a superpower, and the reasons that you mentioned are certainly part of that. Um, but in China, they talk about a peaceful rise, uh, meaning that China hasn't become one of the world's major powers as a result of uh, military power or right. of conquest or of winning wars, but as a consequence of its own non, non-military actions. Mm. Um, and they also talk about this as a return to the center, um, because in a global context for most of human history, um, since the creation of, uh, of uh, separate states, China has been at the uh, center of the world economy, at the center of world politics. Mm. And that only began to change with the the rise of European domination and American domination. So from the point of view of many in China, superpower is the natural status of the country. Mm. And 
it's been an aberration that China was not a superpower <laughs> for the uh, 19th and t- much of the 20th centuries. Right. Um, and peacefully, it's risen back to, I think, its rightful place, uh, many in China would say. Uh, now, to your article, of course, uh, through this two Michael process uh, and, and uh, the tit for tat that was going on with Ming Wanzhou, uh, you point out uh, how China has emerged as the big winner, quietly signaling, of course, uh, its willingness to exchange prisoners uh, that it had had done for some time, and it, it surprised some pendants that uh, that this happened so quickly, but that that the, the message from China was, yeah, we're not afraid to show you that we're doing this specifically to make the point of what we're trying to say is don't mess with us. Right. Well, I think that is the message. It hasn't uh, been stated openly, right. but I do, I do believe that China is seeking to have the same rights and the same privileges and the same ability to make international norms that currently uh, are claimed only by the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it wants to be part of a rules-based international order, but it wants to be able to make the rules as well as take the, the rules, and follow the rules. Um, and so, although this is not officially a case of hostage diplomacy, not officially a case mm. for ho- of hostage exchange, right. Right. the timing to me suggests that it actually was in practice an exchange, and that it is in practice China sending message to the world that uh, we'll swap hostages. Um, but uh, as you said, don't mess with us because we will break the rules if we need to. Um, That's what great powers, that's what superpowers do. This idea that China wasn't a superpower is now coming back to its rightful place is that. So in doing so, even though it has risen through peaceful means, uh, is now looking at a more um, uh, aggressive form of of communication in dealing with other countries and and don't mess with us. Uh, so are you seeing a change there or is this something that we're just now becoming aware of because we had this, this uh, situation develop? I think China has always had policies of this nature, but we are seeing it a lot more now. Mm. Um, you know, when, uh, when Britain in uh, during the late 60s, early 70s, the cultural revolution was going on, including in Hong Kong, Britain took... Um, some Chinese citizens uh, um, arrested them for uh, taking part in anti-government protests and China retaliated by arresting uh, the only British journalist in the country and holding him in house arrest for uh, um, over 700 days, more than a couple of years. Um, So China's always used this tactic and always been fairly open about it. Um, But it's much more visible now um, because China is much more powerful now than it was 50 years ago. Mm. Um, You know, you can't ignore China if you're thinking about world politics anymore. You certainly can't if you're thinking about any aspect of the world economy. So it's come much, much more back to the center. Right. Um, And we hear talk now about uh, there was a movie Wolf Warrior a few years back that came out as um, Rambo style movie, except the heroes were Chinese instead of American because Mm. it was a Chinese movie instead of an American movie. Right. so you hear people talking now about wolf warrior diplomacy that China is yes. willing to um, not speak humbly in the international scene, but to mm. speak aggressively where necessary and to right. swagger if that seems appropriate to right. promoting China's interests. Right. So Chinese diplomats were famed for being quietly polite for many, many years. And um, the Chinese ambassador to Canada or to any other country is going to frequently now speak in a much less humble manner than once, once the case. So that's a change of tone. Yeah, along with the uh, the continuities. Yeah, 
Now, you mentioned retaliation, China retaliating, and China was retaliating in terms of what Canada had done as well. So has it been only in a, in a retaliatory manner that has taken this stance, uh, or has it been the aggressor in terms of, of moving first, you know, or has it only been in reaction to things that have happened? Yeah, that's, um, that's always tricky to say because everybody always says in a conflict, everybody always says the other guy started it. <laughs> right. Um, so it's like kids fighting, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but these are not children. These are mm. governments with uh, yeah. major uh, capacity to do good or harm at their yeah. disposal. So, yes. uh, um, you know, from the point of view of Canada, the Chinese started the conflict that we had with them over uh, Meng Wanzhou, even though Canada arrest, made the first arrest. Um, Canada was acting in accordance with uh, its own uh, its own law and international law, and the government of China said, "Well, no, we're by arresting two Canadians, we're acting in accordance with uh, with our interests and with international law." So, um, you know, it's tit for tat is uh, always also a question of uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. Has China ever acted aggressively? Certainly. I mean, I mentioned yeah. in 1979, it invaded Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, poor decision. It was not uh, successful in gaining its goals. Um, so China does act aggressively on occasion. Um, China's policy more commonly has been to quietly increase its power and its position in the international system. And when somebody challenges it to respond. So it has been um, an expanding, peacefully expanding in many cases outside of its borders, mm. much less so within, but an expanding economic and political power that responds when somebody does something that China's government sees as trying to stop its peaceful rise. Mm. So arresting someone who's been characterized as one of the princesses of Chinese business, uh, Meng Wanzhou, um, absolutely. That was seen as a challenge to uh, China's peaceful economic rise, and mm -hmm. China retaliated. And usually there is a retaliation going on. Mm. So, yeah. you know, hard to say, but I think the retaliation is what China sees itself as doing, standing up for itself, but not causing the conflicts. But of course, when in any conflict, there's two sides to the conflict, so it's seen differently from the other side. Yes, of course, and uh, and and we are seeing all of that, and we did see all of that play out in in front of us, of course. Um, I'm I'm not sure, David, if you can answer this question, but it is something that came to mind when I was reading through the article and reading through the history and and trying to understand all this. What what role did did the external world play? In, in China's rise and being able to, you know, uh, expand its peaceful rise uh, worldwide? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, under uh, Mao Zedong, so the first leader of the People's Republic of China, uh, declared in 1949, um, Mao's government tended to push for things like self-reliant development and not being drawn into the world's capitalist system that mm. reached its uh, pinnacle or its uh, worst point, depending how you look at it, during the Cultural Revolution, when uh, many Chinese suffered because the country was seeking uh, economic growth without um, without many connections to the global economy, because they wanted to build uh, 
a communist state without connections to the capitalist world that was unsuccessful. Mao's successor, ultimate successor, not immediate successor, but uh, the man who came to power and governed for an extensive period afterward, Deng Xiaoping, um, changed course and agreed to establish uh, diplomatic relations uh, first with Canada in 1970 and then soon afterwards with the United States. Um, and the Chinese economic path became a rise economically within the context of the global trading system. Mm -hmm. So China, in some ways, became capitalist in order to grow, mm -hmm. which was the opposite of Mao's strategy. Right. But this is Deng Xiaoping's strategy. Mm -hmm. He is said to have said that, you know, it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white. What matters is it catches mice. So it's a pragmatic stance. Mm -hmm. We're going to increase prosperity in our country and we're going to do it by doing whatever works. Mm. And, you know, you started off by mentioning cheap labor. This is one of China's really competitive advantages. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper to have a factory with low paid workers not allowed to organize and trade into trade unions mm -hmm. in China. That's much cheaper than uh, having a factory in Ontario. Right. So jobs tended to flow to the cheap, to where they were cheaper and where there was uh, less chance of, uh, labor activism so they tended to flow to china um and that's facilitated by the nature of the global trading system because business goes where the costs are low um all other all other things being equal so you know we hear about offshoring and so on so yeah. there was a, certainly a move of employment a move of cash a move of business um from the developed world the wealthiest countries to china and as a result, China has grown enormously. So the rise of China is completely part of its decision to connect with the international system and to uh, accept the rules. But what's changed, I think, is that China is now strong enough that it doesn't have to do that anymore. It can now be, instead of seeking business from overseas, it can now be the country that people petition for business. And that's, you know. It, it's a Canada-China relationship. It's Canada that's now the uh, <laughs> the one asking for a chance to take part in the prosperity, right? Uh, a weaker partner, which is not how Canadians are used to relating to China. It's the case now. Yeah, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is David Webster. He's a history professor at Bishop's University, an adjunct research professor at Carleton University. And I'm talking to him about an article he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, Ming for the Two Michaels, Lessons for the World from the China-Canada Prison Swap. You can find that on The Conversation if you go to the uh, uh, conversation.ca website and read all about it there. And uh, it's a pleasure to have David on the show talking about this and elaborating on it and talking about other things as well. David, you, you talked about um, uh, human rights. And of course, uh, we did hear some of that a, a little while ago uh, when Canada was criticizing China. And of course, China did come back, uh, like you say, and say, well, don't talk to us about uh, human rights when you, you have your own, uh, your own history with Indigenous people that you have not done well with. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the indigenous people's human rights question is a uh, is an important one. Um, you may recall that uh, Canada's parliament recently uh, condemned China for carrying out a genocide. They said against the uh, the Uyghur people who mm -hmm. live in uh, mm -hmm. what's now called what's now Xinjiang in northwestern China, um, but is also the uh, traditional homeland of the Uyghur people. Mm. Um, 
is that these and here we have an indigenous people um, and Canada spoken out for them. But then the Chinese government can say, and justifiably perhaps, um, Canada's treatment of its own, um, Canada's treatment of the first peoples of the land that's now occupied by Canada um, has not exactly been um, something to celebrate. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we see that again and again and again with uh, um, unmarked graves this year and mm -hmm. with uh, continued abuses and with land disputes and with pipelines. And if you can vote, okay, that's political democracy. But is there equal rights for Indigenous people in Canada? You certainly can't really say that there is. Um, so if you look from a different perspective, you could say here's two states that are both badly mistreating Indigenous peoples and both doing it on lands that were never uh, surrendered, that they mm. just took mm. um, without any justification. So perhaps what we really need to do is both countries critically examine their own situations and uh, start to listen more and behave a little less paternalistically towards the, uh, the Uyghur or the Haudenosaunee mm. mm. or the Tibetans or the Wet'suwet'en. Mm. Um, you can make a lot of parallels here, I think, right. and uh, yeah. perhaps both countries have the opportunity to improve their, to mutually improve their records on human rights, right. um, rather than each accusing the other of yeah. <laughs> violations. Right. True. And, and on that note of, of human rights, uh, your article does, of course, point out, and you, you did mention this about 1997 when Canada did this about face with Jean Chrétien's government, stopping to support United Nations resolution on human rights in China and, and change to a bilateral human rights dialogue with them. And, and you say that that really changed uh, how, how China was able to bury that more uh, about the human rights. I think it did, yes. I mean, I think it sent a clear message that the Canadian goal in engaging with China was, uh, was business. Mm. And certainly Jean Chrétien led numerous trade missions to China, and certainly Canada-China two-way trade and investment in each country by the other grew uh, significantly. And China is now one of Canada's most important trade partners, which was not the case previously. So there's been a real change there. And the decision was quite consciously made that we'll put Canadian prosperity, meaning increased trade, ahead of uh, human rights advocacy. Mm. So Canada essentially messaged to the world that our policy is a trade policy. Our policy is not a rights-based policy. Yeah. Human rights are great, but they're a secondary factor in our foreign policy. Yeah. You know, Canada really does need, if it wants to be seen as a promoter of human rights, it needs to actually um, take concrete measures. It needs to uh, speak about human rights and not whisper about them, as Jean Chrétien did. It needs to uh, promote a consistent rights-based policy, which means integrating human rights into all aspects of its foreign policy and indeed domestic policy. So when the government talks about a feminist human rights policy and sells weapons to Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. which is not a paradise for women by any stretch of the imagination, right. it's sort of undermining its own words. So sometimes 
And I think this is a concern is that the rhetoric of human rights backed by zero actions becomes counterproductive. Right. Canada talks about human rights, but does nothing to promote them internationally. Everybody says, oh, okay, it's those Canadians mouthing off again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. a policy of say one thing and do another. Right. When really Canadian uh, foreign policy is about promoting Canadian business interests overseas. That's why Canada is home to the uh, um, majority of the world's uh, mining companies. Um, why Canada is accused of human rights violations carried out by Canadian corporations around the world. And why Canada is ineffective in promoting what it says is its goal of promotion of human rights in China and in other countries. Right. Uh, now, the other thing your article touches on, uh, a number of things, uh, is this uh, AUKUS security pact between the United States, the UK, and Australia. And I know I spoke with someone else about this and, and, and how it sort of was, came as a surprise to Canada. Well, the AUKUS was a surprise to almost everybody except the three countries concerned. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> it was a shock to China, great shock to France, which mm-hmm. lost billions of dollars in and sales as a result. Um, it was a big shock. Um, should Canada have been part of it? I don't really see the logic for Canada being included in, in an agreement like that. Mm. Um, this is an arrangement which is about giving Australia nuclear-capable submarines, right. which is an area where Canada has no particular interest. Right. Um, in a broader sense, it's a security arrangement aimed against China, Mm. um, which is in some ways odd because China is Australia's number one trade partner. Mm. Um, So it's a love-hate relationship there too. Mm. But why would Canada be a member of a military alliance in Asia? It never has been. Mm. There was a previous military alliance in Asia called CETO, the Southeast Asia Asia Treaty Organization. Mm -hmm. So it's a Southeast Asian counterpart to NATO. it included the United States, uh, Thailand, the Philippines, some countries in Southeast Asia. It included Britain and France. It didn't include Canada. Mm. Um, Canada was uh, not interested in joining back then when it was formed. Um, Canada did not take part in the American and Australian war ep- effort in Vietnam directly. It let some support, but there was no um, dispatch of Canadian soldiers to that war. That was an American and Australian war, not a Canadian war. Why would Canada wish to, and why should Canada be part of a military alliance in Asia? I'm not sure what interest it would be seen as serving. Mm. Uh, It doesn't promote Canadian trade. It doesn't promote human rights. Mm. It antagonizes China. Mm. Um, So it's a little unclear what its goal is beyond the sale of submarines beyond uh, puffing up Australia's military stature. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it's not an arrangement that Canada should be part of um, any more than it's an arrangement that France should be part of mm. because these are not countries with substantial military involvement in South, uh, Southeast and Eastern Asia. Mm. You know, it, the argument that Canada has been left out, well, why is a bit, it's bit tautological. It kind of assumes its own answer. Why would Canada be included in such an agreement? Right. What would be Canada's interest in joining it? Right. It's not, that's not clear to me. Mm. 
I have heard something about uh, the North and uh, the North Passage, of course, uh, and uh, be and that China is showing some interest in in developing or, or having some kind of a uh, of a stance in 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 that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, there's. Uh... <laughs> You know, as you know, one of the effects of climate change uh, is uh, melting Mm. ice. And uh, so the old European dream of a Northwest Passage traveling uh, north through Hudson's Bay around to Asia is uh, becoming a reality. And uh, it might become China's Northeast Passage to Europe uh, in the future. Uh, Mm. From the point of view of Canada, these are internal waterways, of course. and Canada has, uh, there's not, Canada's claim that these are internal waters has never been accepted by um, larger powers that want to use those waterways. It's never been accepted by the United States, which right. says these are international waters and we have the right to send American ships through whenever we want. Right. Um, so China's stance and the, American, and the United States' stance are, are very similar here. Um, this is international waterway. Um, Canada's tried to, uh, enhance its small power by working towards multilateral solutions with other countries in the north so there's an arctic council there's uh, efforts to work with uh, denmark and norway and others to uh, ensure that the arctic is kept as a peaceful zone mm. um we're probably going to have to if we want to continue that sort of multilateral strategy we're probably gonna have to bring in bring in china as a uh, as an associate in that because it's going to want to uh, promote its trade everywhere. Um, and perhaps the argument would be, would be uh, better to have them inside the room in the conversations than outside right. causing trouble. Right. <laughs> so, you know, but yeah, I mean, we're going to have to think a lot more about uh, rare earth mining and we're going to start thinking more about seabed mining and, yeah. you know, uh, all of these issues. Right. And, uh, you could probably relate Canada's claims to territorial waters in the north to China's claims to territorial waters in the South China Sea. Mm. Think about how we're going to handle global maritime commons. I mean, these are the kind of discussions that need to be taking place. Mm. Um, I want to revisit the law of the sea on that, for instance. Mm. So. I'm going to get more and more general the longer I talk. So <laughs> okay. Well, we're just going to finish up. So I'm just wondering in terms of the, this relationship with moving forward with China and, uh, and how it sees itself and how Canada sees itself. Um, what do you think Canada needs to do in moving forward? Do you think this, this is certainly a time and a wake up call uh, for, for Canada to now start looking at China differently and starting to perhaps educate itself differently on it? Absolutely. We need much greater awareness of China in this country. Um, the same way that, I mean, Canadians are extremely well informed about American politics and American society through our media and through universities, uh, through just popular culture. Um, we don't have the same awareness of China. That needs to change. Uh, there's clearly two major powers in the world, and we need to be um, at least half as well aware of China as we are of the United States. And that's going to take so a lot of uh, education, a lot of deliberate plans to make Canadians more aware about what China is so that while not agreeing with China's strategies, we can at least understand where they're coming from and try to think about how to address them. So that's really important. We need to speak 
and act in compatible fashions. Talking a lot about human rights and actually prioritizing trade has not helped Canada's relationship with China. It's uh, led to some troubles. We need to actually think about how we relate that and probably end up with a situation where human rights promotion is an integral aspect of all aspects of our foreign policy, which, need, which is a change that will need to be made. So we need more understanding of China. We need more um, consistency in foreign policy making rather than changing tack every time there's a new government. Mm. And, you know, I think I could actually end by saying it would be great if when we talk about foreign policy in an election, we could talk about relations with China and not just relations with the United States. We mm. could talk about broader concerns. We could talk about being aware that Canada is a country that depends on the world for its prosperity. And therefore, we need to think more about foreign policy when we're choosing our own direction for our own country. So, you know, we need to talk about it during and between federal elections as well. Right. All right, David, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and uh, talk to us about this, your article in the conversation, Ming for the Two Michaels, Lessons for the World from the China-Canada Prison Swap. And if people want to learn more or read more about that article, they can go to theconversation.ca and find that article there. And uh, you have other articles that you've uh, authored there as well, so people can check everything you've done out there. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show, and I want to thank you. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show again in the future. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. David Webster is a history professor at Bishop's University and adjunct research professor at Carleton University, and it's been a pleasure to have him back on the show talking to him, and we look forward, as I say, to have him back on the show again. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.